listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So church this morning, I need you to go to three different places. Go to Romans 4 and then move all the way back to the Old Testament, find Genesis 15 and Psalm 32. So we're going to plant ourselves in Romans 4. That's where we're going to pick up today. But we're going to need to go back to Genesis 15 and Psalm 32 because Paul does that. So last week, uh, Clint brought us the truth of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, where Paul has kind of laid out his theological case of this idea that God declares people righteous only through faith, not by works. And it was this deep theological uh, reality. And Clint used the example, it's that, that waving of the flag of surrendering who we are, accepting this gift that we are only declared righteous, seen that way, not by anything that we do. Even faith is not a work. That it's only through faith. Well, then it's almost as you're reading this letter, it's almost like this conversation going on. It's almost as if somebody steps up and says, okay, Paul, if that's true, then prove it. You know, remind me of the time when I'm about 10 years old and I told my cousin I could outrun a yard dart. And uh, so he said, prove it. And well, I didn't. And uh, still alive today, so that was good. Or the time, I don't know, I'm 12 years old. I was not the most intelligent kid growing up. I kind of knew no boundaries. We're camping, no adults. Once again, not real smart. Thanks, Mom. Um, I said that there's these pine trees, and I said, you know what? I bet I can snap one of the tops out of those pine trees. So being the supportive friends they were, they said, prove it. So I climbed as high as I could in the top of this pine tree and began swaying, thinking Man, I'm going to sway this tree back and forth enough times and that top's going to snap right off. Well, just know if you do that, it does not happen. It actually snaps about two or three feet below you. And uh, I still have not caught my breath from, from that fall. So here's what they say. They say, Paul, if that's true, your chance, now prove it. So what Paul is going to do, he is going to take two men, bring them to the stand. And it's two men, it, it's, it's a brilliant move by Paul. Because Paul is going to take two people, one Abraham and the other is David. And you know of Abraham. Abraham was this man born Abram, follows God, receives a promise in Genesis 12. And he becomes what's known as the father of the Jews. He's going to have a son we'll talk about in a minute. That son has another one. So his grandson, Jacob, becomes Israel has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes. And he becomes the father of the Jewish people. Well, most known for the time on Mount Moriah, where God tells him, take your son Isaac to the mountain, and there you will sacrifice him. Well, then he's going to use David. You know him as the young shepherd boy, the son of Jesse. And he's the one that grows up one day. Samuel shows up into his house, anoints him as king as he's a child, Years later, he's watching the sheep. His father says, take some food to your brothers who were in battle, supporting Saul. He does. And he sees Goliath insulting his God, and he just can't stand it. So you know the story goes, and he takes down Goliath with a slingshot. So these men are great 
examples. I mean, he's almost luring them in when he uses these two guys because these were men that the Jewish readers would have held in the highest of honor. I mean, he's Father Abraham. He's the king of all kings in David. These men, they would have grown up hearing stories about. I'm sure they acted and wanted to be like them. They're men that they respected, even idolized. So let's see how Paul is going to use them. In Romans chapter 4, we'll cover verses 1 through 12 today. This is what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh. So notice the title, Abraham, our forefather, the one that went before us. What does he gain by being justified according to the flesh? Because the Jews believed if anyone could shut down Paul's argument of this idea you're only justified by faith, not by works, they felt like they had him. It'd be Abraham. Because he was someone, he was a man's man, a man of integrity, a man that would go and rescue those in need. A man that follows God. But something's happened that we all do. What's happening is this idea of we take people that lived in the past in history and we tend to idolize people. We still do it today. There are people that we put up and we talk about. I do it. I mean, one of the men I look up to greatly is, is Martin Luther. And man, I err thinking that he was just above you know, anyone else in this super spiritual Christian dude. He was a godly man, I believe, in a lot of ways. But I know he had faults. He had to. I mean, thinking of people that we do this idea of hero worship. We do this thing called selective amnesia. And that's what's happening with Abraham. We like to remember all the great things people have done. But we tend to kind of forget those things that would tarnish kind of our view of them. And Abraham is no exception. In fact, I did some looking into how they would have viewed Abraham. I found some ancient writings. One was in this book called the Kedushan. I believe that's how you say it. They wrote, it was this collection of books of Jewish traditions, and this is what they said about Abraham, that Abraham performed the entire law before it was even given. I mean, that is how they viewed this man. I found even earlier that there was this collection of books called the Books of Jubilee. And they said for Abraham, he was perfect in all his deeds before the Lord, well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. He was perfect in his deeds. I then found another book, a, a book of prayers by Manassas. It said that Abraham never needed to repent. So they're taking Abraham and saying that he in fact was justified by his word. Because of their selective amnesia, because they seem to forget that there was this one time where he's going into Egypt and he's a little scared. And so he tells his wife, Sarah, hey, tell them you're my sister so they won't harm me. Well, one of the princes of Pharaoh takes her in and, and God sends plagues to their house. A little bit later in the Gab, it seemed to forget that Abraham was the same one who again says, hey, didn't work the right. Why don't you lie again and say you're my sister? And God brings... Um, tells King Abimelech in a dream that uh, you're a dead man. They seem to forget that when his wife was unable to have a son, that he is a child with one of her servants. And it's this idea of selective amnesia that we all 
do. We, we tend to idolize people. So notice Paul's response. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he says, I get it. He says, man, you look at Abraham's life and he's definitely one that you would look at. There's so much to boast about. Man, somebody that everybody wants to be, but he says, before an all-knowing superior God, we have nothing to boast about. So Paul now has their attention. They're wondering what Paul's going to do because they're beginning to tear down their kind of idealized view of their father Abraham. Then in verse 3, He's going to take them to the Old Testament. He says, for what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So turn now to Genesis 15 and you're going to see it in context. You'll see that's almost word for word. But you have to kind of see what's going on around it to understand why Paul would use this example. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it's almost the same word for word. And he believed God. And he counted it to him as righteousness. So let's break that down a minute. Because Paul is saying it's not by works. He doesn't use that word. He says it's by believing or by faith that something happened. Well, what is that something? He says that something gets, he uses the word counted to. Or yours might say credited. It's this idea of you've got a bank account but nothing in it. You don't have enough to pay or to earn your, your right into something or for having this. And someone comes and deposits something into your bank account that you did nothing to deserve it. He says it's, he counts something. He gets credited something. What is the something? Righteousness. He says, even Abraham, as great as you may think he is, he was bankrupt in this area, but when he believed, God credited, he accounted to him a righteousness that he did not have on his own. It means that God treated Abraham as though he was living a righteous life, even though he was not. That he was great in their eyes, but he was still unrighteous before a holy, all-knowing, righteous judge. So Paul, he's not wanting to debate whether Abraham was somebody to look up to or to debate or, or to even follow as an example. He's trying to show them an even greater point because notice in context, go back to verse 1 of Genesis 15. Here's what's just happened. Abraham has set out. Lot, his nephew, they separated ways and Lot gets taken uh, captive, prisoner of war. Abraham takes 318 men to liberate his nephew. But he doesn't go up against one king. He goes up against four. And after an amazing victory, he frees Lot. You don't find Abraham celebrating in some big festival. You find him with this kind of post-victory letdown. Because in verse 1, notice what happens. Notice what you see. After these things, this victory of, of releasing Lot and defeating the four kings, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. So Abraham is here. He's struggling. I mean, he, he's distraught. He is, he is fearful. 
So then Abraham tells God why. Verse 2 and 3. And Abraham said, or Abram, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and my heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So he's thinking back to Genesis chapter 12, where God first promised him land. He would be a great nation, make his great name, bless him to bless others. In him, all the earth will be blessed. And he's looking around going, there's no way. There's no way this is going to happen because I still don't have a child. So even after this amazing victory, he finds himself giving up hope. So God does something gracious. Look at verse 5. And he brings him outside and he said, Abram, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And what we don't know, we don't know if this was kind of an immediate reaction or if there was some time lapse or if Abraham verbally said something or if this was just the quietness of his own mind. He tells us in verse 6, And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham has been childless for his 80 plus years. Sarah is unable to have a child and she is well beyond the childbearing years. But Abraham truly believed. He trusted in God's promises. And Abraham was counted as righteous, Paul says, not by his works, but his faith. He was justified by faith long before he'll ever make that walk up to Mount Moriah to do the unthinkable. To bind his son, lay him on the altar and raise the knife ready to plunge it into his chest. It was before that that he was declared righteous. So then Paul's going to explain it another way. Verse 4 and 5. He says, now to the one who works, back in Romans 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but are his due. Meaning if this is something you can work for, it's what you're, you're due. It's what God is obligated to do for you. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies. And then he says something. The ungodly by faith as counted as righteous. So quickly he says, if it's something you can earn, then God's obligated to save you. No matter the effort. But if it's a gift, it is something that you do not deserve. And Paul says it's either or. You don't get it both ways. But then he does something incredible here. He makes an incredible claim. In verse 5, he says, And God justifies the ungodly, or the wicked, as yours might say. So first of all, Paul discourages working for your salvation. But then, then he says, because God is God, he justifies not those that are trying really hard. Not those that get it right 51% of the time. He says he justifies the ungodly. Godly. And the question is, who would do that? Who is going to justify an ungodly and unworthy person? So then it's as if Paul says, Abraham, you can have a seat, you're dismissed. And David, will you take the stand? Now think about David and what you know about him stepping in right after he has just said, God justifies the ungodly. In verse 6, 
as David walks to the stand and sits down, also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And notice what he says about himself. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So he says, Abraham. Abraham was counted righteous, not by his works, but only through faith. The faith is the vehicle that brings him God's righteousness that he needs. But David shows us something else. He shows us someone who receives an undeserved righteousness after he does something horrible. So Abraham is declared righteous before he does anything great. But David is going to be declared righteous after wickedness. And what he does, he quotes uh, Psalm 32. And if you want to turn there real quickly, do that. Because he's going to call himself several things or use one word to describe himself in verse uh, chapter 32, verse is 1. He says, blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. And here's what helps us understand this fully. And I didn't see this until this past week. David here has broken at least three of the commandments. He's coveted Bathsheba, another man's wife. He's committed adultery. And he's been involved in the murder of Uriah. And the Old Testament system made allowances for certain things. If you sinned against a neighbor and you cheated them and it was discovered, there would be a sacrifice you could go through to have that sin atoned. One of your animals got loose and, and gored someone or, or, or damaged livestock or their fields. There was a sacrifice, something you did to atone for your sins. But there was no amount of sacrifice in the Old Testament system that would cover all three of these. If he'd only coveted, there was atonement. If he'd committed adultery, there was a sacrifice to cover that. If he'd even murdered someone, there was an atoning process to go through. But there is no amount of sacrifice in the Old Testament to cover all three of these. So when David writes these words, he knows there isn't a sacrifice I can do to make it possible, big enough to cover my sins. He knew he was without any hope. All David could do was throw himself at the mercy of God and take whatever God gives him. So this is David's only course of action. Look what he found in verse 3 through 5 of Psalm 32. And when I kept silent, my bones, they wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength has dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. And I will confess my transgressions to you, Lord. And notice what happens. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Paul recognized, or David recognized a blessedness that there was no amount of work he could do to fix his problem. 
It was only found when a forgiveness and a blessedness by putting his faith in who God is and the things that he had promised. Well, up until this point, when you read this, it seems like he's talking and Paul's only concerned with the Jewish readers. I mean, he's talked about Father Abraham. Well, I'm a Gentile. That means nothing to me. King of the Jews, the greatest king they've ever had in David. Well, that doesn't relate to me. In fact, my grandfather, you know, fought against David. Well, then in verse 9, he's going to answer the question, then who is this really for? In chapter 4 of Romans, verses 9 through 10. Is this the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And I can see them naturally asking, it sounds great, Paul, but... But is it just for them? Because I'm kind of left out in all of this. For if we say that faith was counted to Abraham, if we affirm that as righteousness, well, then when it was accounted to him, was it before or after he was circumcised? And why would that even matter? The reason it matters is if Abraham was credited as righteousness, when did it happen? Was it before or after His circumcision. And if you follow his life, here's what you see. In Genesis 15, verses 4 through 6, God promises Abraham that he would have a son. In chapter 16 of Genesis, he's at least 86 years old when he attempted to help God fulfill his promise by having a son named Ishmael with with Hagar, Sarah's servant. Genesis 17, 24. Ishmael's at least 13 years old when Abraham and his entire household is circumcised. So the most conservative example or estimate we have is Abraham was credited as righteous at least 14 years before he was circumcised. So then what's the point? It means that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Meaning that Abraham was declared righteous when he was still a Gentile. That righteousness through faith was a Gentile principle before it ever came a Jewish reality. So then Paul answers the question in verse 10. It was after. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign or the seal of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, not works, while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who will believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And can you imagine hearing this as a Gentile reader? To hear that the God that these Jews are worshiping, that you are now wanting to follow, He has always been for you and seeking you. And God always had a way of providing for you something that has always seemed beyond your reach. And Paul, he has left no doubt that Abraham was the father, not just of the circumcised believers, but of the uncircumcised. He's bringing them into one family that they all get to say, 
Yes, that is my father. Father Abraham, Jew or Gentile. And hopefully we see how powerful this is to these original Jewish and even Gentile believers to hear the one thing that you need is a righteousness that you'll never be able to obtain. There's no amount of work that you could ever do that will even be close to being good enough. But by faith, apart from works, as the Puritans would say, solo fide, through faith alone that God provides His righteousness to them. But hopefully we're going to walk away seeing that it's just as powerful for us today. Because when they looked at Abraham, they saw this man that that seemed wonderful in a lot of ways. And you look at me, and you might see my life a certain way. You know, for 25 years, faithful husband. That's what you would probably see. Involved dad. Three great kids try to be. Even a dedicated pastor for 20 some odd years now. And that's probably what most people would see. But if you got to see what God sees, and you saw a faithful husband, but he sees every impure thought I've ever had. I mean, you might see an involved father, but he's seen every time I've been angry, sinfully angry, when I've belittled them and I've torn them down. You might see a dedicated pastor serving other people. What you haven't seen is the times I've done it only to be noticed out of selfish ambition. So before God, there is nothing I have to boast in. And so what happens is, There is only a righteousness that is only available that has to be different in a part of it. I have to be declared righteous even when I'm wicked. And that's what happens. That there is a box, so to say, that contains every bit of righteousness that I need. But there is no amount of work, there is no amount of effort I could ever put in that my best efforts on my best day will not even come close. What only happens through faith, not faith by my works, not a faith plus my works, but a solo fide, faith alone. And I have to rest in that, that my only hope is that God would credit to me a righteousness while I am still wicked. But it's only available by trusting, as David did, trusting in the promises. He was far beyond hope. So I began thinking and praying this week, well, then how is David relevant? And I don't know where you are, but I I know that David saw himself kind of beyond hope. Saw himself in a situation where he knew there was nothing that he could do. But on his own, he had nothing. Threw himself at the mercy of God, but he trusted And who God is entrusted in His promises. So I'm wondering, is there a promise that maybe you need this morning? That maybe it's you reach into that righteousness and it's a promise of eternal life that promise you that for this is the will of my Father that anyone who looks to the Son and believes, not works, 
believes in him should have eternal life and that I will raise him up on the last day. Maybe you need a promise to face even just the fear of death. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Believe in this. Or maybe it's the promise of just enduring through pain and struggles that you're facing. For in this light momentary affliction, not because it's easy, not because we feel it's light, but compared to glory, absolutely it is. For us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're temporary. But to the things that are unseen are eternal. Or maybe just that standing up against sin and how weary that can be to us. The promise to trust and submit yourselves therefore to God resists the devil and he will flee from you. Draw close to God, draw near to him and he will draw near. Feeling like you're just completely unforgiven. You've tried and tried again and you just keep doing the same thing over and over. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or maybe you have something or someone that just always seems to be against you. As for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good and will bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Fighting loneliness. Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Maybe you need a promise where God can actually come through and provide. He says, I'll supply every need of yours according not to what I need or what I want, but His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Or fighting anxiety that... He says, don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Him. Or maybe it's just the ability to keep going. Walking that Christian life that gets burdensome and you worry, is it really worth it? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless, before his glory with great joy. So what promise do you need to be trusting in this morning? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.